I am the Lord your God who led you out of slavery. Do not make an idol, for I am jealous. On February 4, 1974, a 19-year-old woman was kidnapped from her Berkeley apartment in, 19, in the US. An urban guerrilla left-wing group called the Symbionese Liberation Army claimed responsibility for the abduction. The woman who was abducted was a wealthy heiress. Her name was Patty Hurst. Did anyone see this on TV when it actually happened? Some people are nodding. Some of us were not born. Patty Hurst was the granddaughter of an American publishing magnet. And incredibly, two months after she was abducted, Hurst announced on audio tape that she had joined the group that had abducted her, changed her name to Tanya, and now wore a beret and held a machine gun. Bank cameras caught her as she robbed a bank with the Symbolese Liberation Army. There she was with the machine gun in hand. She took part. She became a co-conspirator after just two months in her own kidnapping. And psychologists have thought about this and they try to explain it. And I guess it really gives us an insight into how the human heart works in the way in which someone could be a victim and yet become a perpetrator at the same time. Psychologists observe that abused people identify often with their abusers because there is capacity within the human heart to look at the greatest power, the greatest power that's in our life and to identify with that and to become like that, thinking that by becoming like that power or identifying with that power, then you can get that power for yourself. Well, the irony was that once Patty had decided to join the SLA, she was very hard to rescue. She was very hard to rescue from these crazy and violent people because she wanted that power, thinking that she would get the power by joining them. She, in fact, lost power over herself. God says, do not make an idol, for I am jealous. We're going to look this morning at the way in which we have a capacity as human people to move our allegiances to sources of power that are out there, things that are attractive to us, and we do this at the cost of worshipping God. We're going to look at the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments this morning. We're going to see three things. We're going to see, firstly, the God who speaks these commands. Secondly, we're going to see why we fail to follow them. And thirdly, we're going to see how Jesus fulfills them. You might remember last week we looked at Exodus 19, and Exodus 19 sets the stage for these Ten Commandments. And indeed, as we saw, chapters 19 to 24 really serve as bookends to these Ten Commandments. And there within chapters 19 to 24 are included these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words. 
But it's not just the Ten Commandments within chapters 19 to 24. We also have, have as you see after chapter 20, chapters 21 to 23, the specifics of how these laws are played out in everyday life. The case law, if you like. And central to the book of Exodus is this covenant, this promise that God is making between himself and his people here in these pages between chapters 19 to 24. And in fact, so important are these chapters between chapters 19 and 24, people often, and people have thought about the book of Exodus, theologians, Old Testament theologians, often make a connection between what's going on here in chapters 19 to 24 and what happened when God brought the world into being in the creation narratives in the book of Genesis. One old scholar notes that in the creation narrative, God creates the universe simply by speaking his word. In a very real way, the entire creation depends or hangs upon the word of God. Here, the book of the covenant is what forges Israel into a nation. It is her national constitution, so to speak. It is also ten words that bring about the birth of a nation. Like creation, Israel as a nation hangs upon the ten words for her very being. See what's happened to Israel? They've come out of those waters. They've been birthed, if you like, through those waters of salvation out of the Red Sea. And just as God brought creation into being through speaking his word, now he's bringing his people into being. The nation of Israel are being brought into being by him speaking these ten words. And as we saw last week, it's very important as we look at the Ten Commandments that we don't lose the God who speaks them. Exodus chapter 20 verse 1 we read these words. God spoke all these words. Got a Bible open you might want to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Because it, there in verse 1 are, are really remarkable words. And in, in words in which we often just skip past. These are, are, in fact, incredible words. Because here, what we have in Exodus chapter 20 is God speaking, not remotely, through a mediator, but God speaking directly to Israel. People were so awestruck by this experience that when God finished at the end of the chapter there in verse 19, they asked for Moses to speak instead of God. As God gives these Ten Commandments, the people hear the voice of God for themselves. And no one that day could have doubted the presence of God amongst them. This if you like, is the highlight so far really in the Bible. So far, where God makes his presence known so clearly, so directly to his people. God is being made known as he speaks these Ten Commandments, as the law is given. And Israel are to see just how incredible, how awesome 
is God in his holiness and yet how amazing he is in his mercy. The God who was ablaze at Sinai is also the God who has brought his people on eagles' wings. This God at Sinai is to be feared and he is to be loved at the same time and his commandments are a gift of both love and fear. His commandments are a divine gift from a gracious God who saves and gives his truth to his people to teach them how they are to live. One commentator says that the Lord himself is the most significant thing about the Ten Commandments. We must not lose the God behind, the God who speaks these words to his people. They are not just dumped by a mediator. They are given graciously and powerfully directly to the people. Can't miss the God behind them. And as we look at the Ten Commandments, you might want to have glass glance your eyes over them there in Exodus chapter 20. We see at a kind of detailed level these Ten Commandments can be divided into two parts. First part of the first, first four, and we could summarise them as loving God. And the next six we could summarise are to love others, to love people. The first four hang on the command to love God, since they describe the way in which God's people are to be loyal to him. And the last six hang on the command to love your neighbour as yourself. You might have picked up on the way in which Jesus summarises those Ten Commandments as we saw in our reading from the book of Mark, also in the book of Matthew in chapter 22. The first four have this vertical dimension to them. They're directed towards God. And the expression of one's worship towards God is explained in the next six as they're directed horizontally to others. See, what God is saying to his people, now that he has rescued them, you can't please him any way you like. Uh, one uh, medieval theologian thought about it like this. It's, it's like a sundial, and you can't have the sun follow the clock. It's not as if we can just choose how we honour God. No, God has shown us how we ought to honour him. He's made it clear. He's given his word. And these Ten Commandments tell us how to love him appropriately. And indeed, Jesus picks up on this in John chapter 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. My love for God, your love for God, is reflected in our obedience to his words. And what we also see is that just as God gives these commands directly, they are not arbitrary, made-up, random kind of commands. These commands actually show us something about who God is. The God who commands, when he commands, is not just giving us rules in order to... You know, sometimes, when, if you're a kid... Uh, you're in primary school and teachers would have certain rules 
And in fact, different teachers would have different rules. And it kind of, I don't know if it appeared to you like this, but it appeared to me that, you know, whatever rule some teacher had was just a reflection of, you know, whatever they thought of in that moment. Often these rules would change from teacher to teacher, even from moment to moment uh, within one teacher. But these ten rules, they show us something about the character of God. They, they show us his attributes. Who God is, is displayed in the Ten Commandments. And um, we're going to consider just the first two. So I, I want to consider the first commandment. Often we conflate the first and the second commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the second one's kind of similar. And they're kind of just one commandment in our mind. But that's not the case. They are different. So I have a look at the first commandment there in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment really deals with atheism on one hand and polytheism, the, the belief in many gods, on the other hand. It assumes that there is one true God and no other. And it also addresses the deep problem of the human heart. The very first command is directed towards not actions, necessarily, but upon what occurs within the human heart. The way in which the Bible gives this a shorthand, this command of verse 3, is idolatry. And what it acknowledges is that everyone is a worshipper of someone or something. And idolatry in the Bible is putting someone or something above the place of God in our lives. Idolatry is exchanging the glory of the Creator for creation, as Romans chapter 1 explains. And indeed, not just in the Old Testament, sorry, not just in the New Testament, indeed in the Old Testament, idolatry is not simply a matter of the physical creation of pagan altars. Now, idolatry occurs in the heart in the Old Testament as well, in Ezekiel 14. We see this as well in the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul talks about idolatry, which is greed, and idolatry in Galatians chapter 5 as well. So why is it that this commandment is given first? Well, it's given first because I think it understands the fundamental nature of what it is to be human. Because we all do this. We all, in certain ways and in different ways, make other gods before the Lord. So why do we do this? Well, firstly, we do this, I think, because it's an issue of control. The motive always, when we worship anything other than God, something besides him, when we worship something besides him, I think there's a, a degree to which it's about keeping control in our lives. We see this in the garden. Adam and Eve were to listen to the serpent. And it would seem in Genesis chapter 3 that part of the deception 
that the serpent gave to Adam and Eve was around who God was and his supremacy. If they were to make him supreme and not the words of this servant, then perhaps they would miss out. They would lose control honouring God as supreme. And deep down in all our hearts, we believe this. We believe the lie of the serpent. And this reality is sunk down into all our hearts. We're affected by it. And if we're honest with ourselves, often we can see that we do this. That we seek to control our lives. And if we live totally for God, well, there's this sense that we're losing control. If you live completely for God, if He is supreme, well, you lose control, don't you? He can tell you to do things that you don't want to do. He has a right to shape your life. And we don't like that. We don't want our lives shaped by others. And too often, we don't want our lives shaped by God. And so, if you feel like you're out of control, if you live for anything else, in fact, if anything else other than God is in control of your life, you're making an idol. So, we do this. We make idols in our heart. And the Bible reminds us that as we do this, this is not optional. That this is, in fact, something that we all do. That despite its motive, nature will be served. I don't know if, uh, you know, perhaps go on different diets and, um, you know, certain kind of times you're not supposed to eat food. Um, what happens with me, sometimes I, um, I skip lunch. I think I'm doing myself a favour. I skip lunch, I don't need that. You know, I'll cut down a little bit. But you know the problem with skipping lunch? Because I get home and I'm absolutely ravenous. And I'll just eat anything that I can find. Because nature must be served. If you stop eating food, guess what? You gobble any rubbish. And spiritually it's the same as well. We must worship something or someone. We do not live a life in which we are independent. We do not live a life in which we're not worshipping someone or something. We, as human people, depend on something or someone. And this reality of making idols in our heart is inescapable. We do not control ourselves. We're either controlled by the Lord or we're controlled by evil powers. Friends, we're reminded this morning that we must see idols for what they are. We must see them for their stupidity. And after seeing them, we must live in repentance, knowing that we all seek at certain times and in different ways God's other than the Lord our God. And reminded this morning that only God will satisfy our human heart. And so we need to assess ourselves. 
We need to remember that we are to enjoy creation, that we're to steward creation, but we are to worship the Creator. And so we see here as God commands his people not to worship idols. We see here that he is teaching us that God, that our God is a jealous God. If you like, the command can be stated positively. God is saying here to his people, I shall be your only God. He will not share his glory with another. The second commandment you see there in chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, there in verse 4, we're told, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or in the earth beneath when the water is below. This commandment warns us against having the wrong object of worship and against worshipping in the wrong way. Carved images were man-made objects for worship. And these idols have no comparison for the true God. These constructed gods are impersonal. And because they're constructed by human hands, they're ultimately powerless. They're deaf, dumb and dead. And as we see the Exodus narrative unfold, we'll see in the coming weeks that sadly Israel would fail in this commandment all too soon. The psalmist in Psalm 106 says this, At horror they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. Once again, in the second commandment, God's jealousy and supremacy is highlighted. God promised to show faithful love to thousands of generations of those who love him and keep his commands there in verse 6. And this is, intriguingly, the first mention in the book of Exodus of God's love for his people. It's been implied and it's been really driving the whole narrative, but here it is explicit that there is a God who is there, regardless of if people think he is there or not. There is a God who is there regardless of if people are willing to listen to him. There is a God who is there who calls those who he has rescued to love him. Here is God's foundation of how we are to relate to him. And yet, as we've been reminded this morning, we do go after other gods. As quickly as Israel heard this command, they, chapters later, are worshipping the very things that God has commanded them not to. And we too too quickly move our hearts away from our God, the same God who has given us the rescue of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. See, at the end of giving these ten words, the people stood in fear in verses 18 to 21. They had a sense of the incredible awe of God. And we know that they also failed repeatedly. Even their mediator, Moses, would fail. However, the Gospel of the Lord Jesus reminds us there is a greater mediator who did not fail, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. And these ten words, these ten commandments point us to this Saviour. We are told in Galatians chapter 4 that Christ was born under the law to redeem people like us under the law. We're told in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus fulfilled the law in every respect. We're told in Galatians chapter 3 and Colossians 2 that he paid the penalty of the law and bore the curse of the law for us on the cross. We can't keep God's law perfectly. We need another to do this for us. And so the law that we hear this morning, these Ten Commandments drive us not to despair, but these Ten Commandments drive us to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Be reminded that he gives us his spirit and a new heart, that it is possible to obey him. And the spirit empowers us for this task. While in this life we cannot keep the law perfectly and we are always in need of his grace. We don't need to be crushed by the law because we're reminded there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The weight of the law has been lifted. And we now as Christian people, because of the Lord Jesus, because of his perfect obedience, we're actually able to delight in these laws, even though we fail often to obey them. And we don't see these Ten Commandments and his word as burdensome, because our hope and our power and the reality of our Christian lives does not come from our ability to keep the law, but it comes from his law keeping, the Lord Jesus' obedience. He lived the life that we could not live. And he kept the law in a way that we could not keep. And he died the death that we should have died for our law breaking. And this is why we love him. This is why God's people were called to love him in response to his law. And this is why we as Christian people are called to love God in response to his law and the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We praise him as the one who has saved us who can't keep his law. We praise him as the one for which when Jesus looked, when we look at him and we believe we receive Jesus' perfect righteousness by faith alone. He is our only hope. He is the world's only hope. We're to look to the one who kept those commands perfectly, who died for those of us who broke them. And we're to rejoice this morning because we have a Saviour who lived and who died for us. And by giving us the power of his Spirit, we are made into a new creation. Just as Israel was birthed, as God gave his word in that moment at Sinai, when we hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus, we hear of our salvation, and we hear the call to obedience. And as we take that salvation, and as we live in obedience out of gratitude to him, we too come through waters of new birth. We're a new creation, ready to live out these commands to the glory and honour of our God. Amen. Please stand as we sing.